I've never been in trouble in my life. I didn't even have a parking ticket. I didn't, you know what I mean? I, I was brought up like cops are the, the good guys. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I do know that everything was stacked against me. Everything, like everything. This isn't supposed to happen this way. I'm innocent. I know I'm innocent. I know I had nothing to do with this. How is this possible? I grew up trusting the systems. I grew up believing that every human being should do the right thing. And that's why, even though I knew I was dealing with corrupt people, I was not going to bribe anyone to get me out of prison because I wouldn't live with the fact that I bribed my way out of my wife's death. I'm not innocent until proven guilty. I'm guilty until I prove my innocence, and that's absolutely what happened to me. Our system, since I've been out 10 years, it's come a little ways, but it's still broken. I totally lost trust in humanity after what happened to me. This is Wrongful Conviction. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today I have a very special guest, someone who is a change maker in the criminal justice reform movement, who I'm absolutely delighted to have in the studio. So Kim Kardashian, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you for having me. So Kim, I'm really amazed at what you've been able to accomplish in a short time, and I'm thrilled to have you as a public, such a public voice and face 
for the criminal justice reform movement. And I'm, I'm really interested to find out how you got started on this mission and what you plan to do going forward, because um, I think the, you know, the, the possibilities are limitless. So how, what got what got your attention? I know there was an article in, or a, a video you saw on Twitter, like sort of serendipity, yeah, right? Yeah, I that's how I think. Just because I'm not on my phone all the time. I'm not on Twitter all the time. It happened to be that exact moment that I saw a video of Alice Johnson pop up on my feed that someone that I followed retweeted. And I just, my heart broke for her. And her story just, I connected with it for whatever reason. I just felt like it was so wrong and that if I could do anything, then I wanted to try. I truthfully didn't know I was going to get that far. I was about to ask you that. Like, what did you, I mean, because it's such a crazy thing. Like, the idea that you, like, getting someone out of prison is, you know, I mean, like, it's like trying to catch lightning in a bottle, right? Yeah. So, I mean, but you were like, I got, you just, you, you had to do it. And I've I had, had that feeling. I had to do it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was just a feeling that I, I was like, I have to do it. And so, you so, know, she's, she's a woman. I figured Ivanka would totally understand and feel the same thing that I felt. So my first call was to Ivanka. Well, wait a minute. Let's go back a second, Kim, because can you explain the circumstances of this case? Because it is maddening when you know what yeah. happened to Alice. And But at the same time, it's really scarily typical. Yeah. I mean, she is not a unique case, but... You know, there's everyone's probably unique. about three thousand Alice's. Oh yeah, there's so many people in, that are in her situation. It's just in her situation. It's so terrifying. yeah, so she was a part of a drug conspiracy. She had a great job. Um, worked at FedEx for ten years. Um, lost her job. Had five kids. Her youngest son died. Um, had to make money. Had to feed her kids. Somebody told her, hey, if you're the phone mule and if you answer the phone and be that, you know, connection, you can make $1,000 every time you answered the phone. So she didn't do it often, but did it um, enough. She didn't know who the people were. She didn't know the quantities. She wasn't, never touched the drugs. What she, state was this? Tennessee. Right. So, and there's a... I have a lot of experience in Tennessee, but so let's just think about this because there's almost an element of my favorite book I've ever read was Les Miserables and it sort of informed and I think influenced me to get started on this life, this mission of criminal justice reform because there's an element of that, right? Here you have a mom who had a choice, like she was having trouble feeding her family and that's so powerful, right? I mean, there's not, probably nothing yeah. more powerful than a mother's love and I'm not excusing her behavior because it was technically illegal, but Put, let's put ourselves in her shoes for a second, right? There's Absolutely. an interesting choice. So you're faced with, she wasn't a career criminal, never been- Never a, had any, nothing in her history of anything criminal. Her whole family, no one had a criminal record, really good support system, really good team, made some bad choices. Um, everyone else, because it was this big conspiracy, everyone got caught, everyone got in trouble, everyone- I think pled guilty in and out of jail. She, I don't know what their exact sentences were, but she pled not guilty, went to trial because she was like, I just, I was just answering the phones. I didn't even touch the drugs, see the drugs, know the quantity. She knew it was drugs, but didn't ask any questions. 
and she got life in prison without the possibility of parole. And it was so crazy. And isn't that's an amazing thing too? And we, there's so many um, interesting uh, parallels, right, in the way that you and I got started on this. And I want to go back for a second. We'll come back to Alice, but you wouldn't necessarily know this, but both of us have famous fathers who are lawyers. Uh, both wow. of us did some crazy stuff when we were kids that we know, and I've seen you talk about this, which is why I'm referencing yeah. it. Both of us are, are aware that we could have gotten in real trouble totally. for things that we did when we were kids, but they weren't, we weren't in that situation. Right. Yeah. And we were able to, you know, we had good guardian angels or whatever it was. Yeah. Right. So there's, you know, there's a little bit of a there, but for the grace of God, go I, right. Type yeah. of situation when you see somebody like Alice and, both of us got involved in this because of cases that we learned about in the media because the first time I got involved in a case was a guy I read about in the newspaper. And this is where the media can play such an important role, mm -hmm. who was serving a 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge. And once again, that's 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge, right? And so um, I ended up, long story short, sitting in the courtroom holding his mother's hand when we got the judge to reverse the charges or to, to reduce the charges, I should say. And he was freed after nine years of a mandatory 15. But in her case, it's so important what you're saying and what you're doing with Alice. And it's so important that she's such a wonderful spokesperson because of the fact that people need to understand that in these cases, the least culpable person, which in this case was her, ends up with the longest sentence. Mm -hmm. Why? Because A, they don't have information to trade. Mm -hmm. They probably went to her and said, Alice, tell us who the kingpin is. She had no way of knowing. No idea. And they also went to her and said, plead guilty. Now, then, then she's sitting there going, well, wait a minute, if I plead guilty, they probably offer 10 years or something, right? Yeah. And, and, and who wants to make that choice? You're sitting there going, but I just answered the phone and I have a family to take care of and whatever. And so you plead innocent and then they throw the book at you. And that's yeah. exactly what happened. So this story- Every case that I've looked at from like a case about Centoya Brown, like so many people that I have looked at that- have gotten life, it's all been in Tennessee. Hmm. Everything that I've gravitated towards has all been in Tennessee. And the story I was just telling you about Nora Jackson, my, uh, uh, you know, who's become family to me in a very real way, uh, that was a Tennessee case. She was actually wow. in the same prison with Centoya for a period of time. Wow. Um, so, um, yeah, Tennessee is, but it's not the worst state, believe it or not. Um, really? Oklahoma recently passed Louisiana as the state that incarcerates the highest number of people per capita. And and let's talk about that for a second, Kim, as we were talking in the studio earlier, right? America incarcerates five times as many people per capita as the rest of the Western world. So that means we have 25% of the world's prison population, but we only have 4.4% of the world's population. So that can only mean one of two things. Either Americans are the most evil people in the world, or we're doing something really wrong. Because yeah. these other countries don't have problems with crime rates or anything else. It's not, it's, it's not a deterrent. It's, not a, yeah. it's just they have a more humane policy towards their own people. And we are the incarceration nation. And then the numbers get even worse when you get inside of them. And, and now that you've had this experience, I know you went to a woman's prison. Yeah. And, spent, and then you didn't go there and wave and leave. It wasn't a photo op, right? You were no, there. I, was I know. I was there for a few hours. I know. I, was, I, I heard the story. So. It, was, it was fascinating. Honestly, I... After after Alice, I thought to myself, well, if someone murdered someone, 
would I fight hard to get them out? Thinking that, you know, to myself and having those conversations with my family members and my husband. and Right. Violent versus nonviolent. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? Probably not at first, first thought. After going there and hearing these women's stories, I was like, you know what? I absolutely would. And I know, you know, to some people that might that might sound crazy, but hearing the circumstances that these women have been in that have led them to the journey of where they ended up or so many people um, just self-defense and being getting life. And it, it was so like heartbreaking. I never thought, you know, and I'm so glad I went and I can't wait to go back. Wow. What a thing that is to yeah. say. Let's just think about that for a second. Yeah. Here's Kim Kardashian going, I can't wait. And you say, I can't wait to go. And if most people fill that in, they'd go to Mykonos. To, yeah. <laughs> like, yes, your audience, let, let's guess the top 10 guesses, win a, whatever, right? Prison wouldn't be most people's guess of where you would want to go. You can go anywhere. Yeah. You can be anywhere. You're Kim Kardashian. Yeah, right? but I thought, I, I mean... I text my whole family on my way saying, you know, hey, guys, I won't have my phone for a few hours. So, you know, the kids, if anything, if anyone needs anything, you know, just whatever, I'll be back in a few hours. And they were like, well, where are you going? And I was like, oh, I'm going into prison. And they were like, what? Where are you going? And I was like, I'm so sorry. I forgot to tell you guys. You know, I'm just going to check it out. I want to hear these women's stories. And I just I'm just going, you know, and um they were, you know, fascinated. And Chloe had said, wow, I wish you told me I would have gone with you. And my mom is uh, traveling and she was like, you have to fill me in and tell me everything. And it was just, it, it was a moment when I walked in, I mean, to see when I would walk down the halls and the women were banging on the windows and sticking their heads out of the windows, like the place was practically shaking and everyone was scre- screaming, Kim's here. Kim Kardashian's here. Are you going to get us out? Get us out. You know, because after Alice and and it was it was a crazy, crazy experience. And but so it so normalized it for me, just sitting and talking to these women that I totally understood them. You know, Kim Bryan Stevenson, who's a hero, a great hero of mine, um, has a saying, he says, and he said this so powerfully in his TED Talk, which I recommend everybody watch. He said, I believe everyone's better than the worst thing they've ever done. Now, mm. I'm not somebody who believes we should just open the doors and everybody should go free. I, we're, we're a nation yeah. of laws. I think we have to enforce laws, but we have to make the laws humane. We have to make them sensible. And we have to reverse this mass incarceration. We had 300,000 people in prison 30-something years ago. Now we have 2.2 million. Mm-hmm. Like we have, and and inside the numbers, right? You have, and and you touched on this, right? There's so many women in prison. We have 25% of the world's prison population. Mm-hmm. We have 33% of the world's female prison population. Mm-hmm. And going back to Oklahoma, they have double that per capita, mm-hmm. right? They have they over-index the rest of the country by double. In Oklahoma, and your head's going to explode when I tell you this, right? In Oklahoma, and we're working on this now, trying to make a big change. But in Oklahoma, if you're pregnant. And the baby daddy beats you up, whether it's a boyfriend, husband, lover, whatever it is, you are guilty of endangering the welfare of a child and you can go to prison for life. So that's crazy for being beat up. And you don't have to have instigated it. You don't have to do it. You could be stuck in a room. It doesn't matter. 
Like that's, that's how crazy. crazy the laws are. And then there's all these women who are in prison because they were like Alice Johnson. They were the low level person on the team uh, on, on, in some sort of quote, quote unquote conspiracy, right? These are not big drug dealers or kingpins. These are girlfriends who answered the phone like she did or, or who were in a car when they're boyfriend, their dealer boyfriend got pulled over, like Kemba Smith, who I got President mm-hmm. Clinton to grant clemency to all those years ago, um, who just showed like up on my Instagram There was a woman that feed. was not even in the same county when a murder happened, and the boyfriend blamed it on her, and I don't know her exact story, but she got life because he probably ratted her out, and it was, you know, there was no physical connection to her being there, and... She was pregnant and had the baby in prisons, never seen her baby. It was 30 years ago. Right. I mean, she wasn't even there. In the same county. Nope. Right. And, I've heard, and life. I've, I've heard those stories before, too. And it's it's so strange to me why we treat our women this way. And there, there's, there's there, I mean, we could talk about this literally for yeah. days. Yeah. There's, there's shaken baby syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, there's hundreds and hundreds of people, maybe thousands in prison for shaken baby, and a lot of them are women. Caretakers, they're even babysitters, whatever. And these babies died of natural causes. It's crib death. There's no such thing as shaken baby syndrome. It's a made up thing. You cannot shake a baby, and almost every top neurologist agrees on this. You can't shake a baby hard enough to kill it, to rattle its brain without breaking its neck. And none of these babies have broken necks. Think about mm-hmm. it. It's ridiculous. Your brain's not that soft. I mean, yeah. babies, you know, they-, they I never yeah. thought about that. It's crazy, right? So there's there's a whole group of women who people would say, well, she's a murderer. No, no actually, she's a woman who lost her child. And now yeah. she's in prison for life because some overzealous prosecutor or some other thing went wrong in the system. And now they're stuck in there forever. And it's like, and Michelle Murphy, who's who I'm extremely connected to, I, I call her my niece, she calls me uncle. It's an Oklahoma case who was convicted of, she's been on my podcast, on the same podcast that you are sitting here like you are now. Um, and we were on the doctors together. And Michelle was convicted of murdering her 15-week-old baby. Um, and she was egregiously framed. So she served 20 years of a life sentence. And she, before the uh, her conviction was overturned with prejudice, which is like the strongest that a court can say this was wrong. And the judge, uh, after she was exonerated, said that in his four decades on the bench, it was the worst miscarriage of justice he'd ever seen. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen 
a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So... You know, there's there's a huge number of people, and then there are even the ones like you said who were self defense cases, right? Where most of what I said, like I understand, I obviously don't understand the act of you know killing someone, and but the act of if you are getting abused and you have children and you're protecting them and you fight back and the person dies and you're you have life because. You've been beaten for so many years. And I mean, so many of these cases that of these women that were sharing their stories with me, just I I felt them. And that just, you know, I, I feel like even just hearing about all the programs in prison and really how to get people back on their feet for when they get out. There's so many flaws. Like I was like overwhelmed leaving, thinking like, well, I don't even know where to start. Like there's so 
much wrong with this system. I don't even know where to start. But you did start and you are starting and you're here now. And that is making a huge difference. Just the fact that you're here and, and that you're able to use your voice. I'm learning. That's why I wanted to go because I was like, I don't have any connection to prison. I've never been to prison. I don't. I want to go and I want to see what it's like. And I want to hear from people that are living it, what their experience is like and what could change what, you know, just I'm learning. I'm learning as I go. I think it's so important, you know, to highlight the idea that, you know, both of us got involved in this stuff because of stories we you heard about it on social media. I heard about it in old media, right? It was just a newspaper article, newspaper. right? I was holding it in my hands. Right? Some people yeah. are like, wait, what's that? But, uh, yeah. but, you know, it's so important. If you know someone who was wrongfully convicted or who is serving an unjust sentence, you must talk about it. You must call reporters. You must reach out to whoever you can think of because you never know. Talk about it to your friends in a diner. There might be someone at the next table who knows someone who knows someone. The world is actually small that way. And everybody has the ability to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it, it needs to be done. I mean, I, I, it's so easy for me to empathize with the people who are serving these sentences and to just sit there and go, I can't I literally can't think of anything worse than to or be it's the, it's the worst when I mean uh yesterday I had a call with um a gentleman that's in prison for um a drug case got life it's so unfair he's 30 years old he's been in for almost 10 years that was a marijuana case right yeah that's yeah yeah marijuana. Uh, he, he, he had um his prior conviction for, to get him to his three strikes was marijuana and then marijuana with less than half a gram of cocaine <laughs> possession. Half a gram. That's like a sweet and low package for people who aren't familiar. Yeah. That's like, that's literally like how much is in a sweet and low, like yeah. less, maybe a little less than that. Got life. And I was on the phone with the judge that sentenced him to life who resigned because he had never been on the side of having to do something so unfair and now he is fighting with us to get him out. And it's just, I mean, when you see it, at least it gave me like such hope that the jet, like you, you think it was a mandatory sentence that he had to deliver and he knew it was so wrong. And he was like, I'm going to make this right. I'm going to step down and I'm going to help to fight to get him out. And I spoke to him on the phone from prison and, and it was, you know, just a really crazy, it's just, there's so many people like him. And it's so important what you're saying, Kim, because of the fact that these mandatory sentencing laws, and I got involved, the first organization I ever got involved with was Families Against Mandatory Minimums. After I got that first guy, Stephen Lennon, out, I was hooked like you're hooked now. And I love yeah. seeing it in you because you're young enough to be my, my own daughter. And so it's so exciting to see another generation. Um, and and it's this movement is growing so fast, and we're going to turn it upside down. We're going yeah. to. There's no stopping. Yeah. And so... The first thing I did after having that cathartic experience of sitting there holding Mrs. Lennon's hand as her son was, as the judge, you know, slammed the gavel down and ruled that she was going to be free, that he was to be freed. I did some research and I found out about this organization called Families Against Mandatory Minimums. And they are a wonderful organization that has done fantastic things. I've been on their board now for 25 years, so mm -hmm. um, I'm like a true believer, but they've been, we've been 
reversing these mandatory sentencing laws state by state, federally, um, as you know, as much as we can, as many as we can. And we're never going to stop until there's fairness. And it's interesting because, you know, it really struck home to me what you said about this judge saying, I couldn't believe I had to sentence. Like, that doesn't he make any sense. had to sentence Chris Young. He's and it a was judge, just, right? It was, yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting because the history of, of mandatory sentencing laws is that originally they were, my understanding is they were passed because Congress thought, well, it's not right that in some cases a different judge for the same crime might sentence somebody more harshly or more leniently. Oh, wow. um, and so they were trying to make it, you know, more of an even playing field. But then they just started going, well, okay, the tough on crime era, let's just make tougher and tougher sentences, show how tough we are mm-hmm. on crime. They started passing mandatory sentences for everything. Mm-hmm. And they made them tougher and tougher without any regard for what they were doing to mm-hmm. society. And so you end up with a situation where in 2000, I went to the Senate and I, t- I did a presentation for the Democratic Policy Committee in the Senate. Uh, 24 senators there. And I went, one of the people I went with was, I went with Amy Fofol, who was a woman who I convinced President Clinton to grant clemency to. Um, and Julie Stewart, who runs Families Against Mandatory Minimums, was the founder of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. And federal judge Castillo came with us. And he was the ch- vice chair of the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Big, powerful guy. A guy you really think like looks and, and act like you would, ca- you'd cast him as a judge. Mm-hmm. And he said, you, you guys confirm me unanimously to do the most difficult job that anyone can have, which is to sentence another human being to prison. And then you took away my ability to do it. He goes, I just sit there and look at a chart. Mm-hmm. And then I just have to sentence people to these crazy sentences regardless of what I think. And he says, if you That's think- That's what it is. You see, if I, I got a list of some people that I was going to meet with and I just read their sentences and would have thought- no, there's not a chance I, you know, would ever think that this, you know, like not even knowing their circumstances. Then you come and you meet these people. What's on paper and what's in person is so different. And that is the hard part is just, I mean, you obviously can't get to know everyone and, and go around to every prison and meet people and help everyone. I mean, but like the the laws really just have to change. And, and I do know that I do talk to the White House um, often on this subject um, with Jared Kushner, and he is really passionate about changing some of these laws and getting a lot of bills passed. And hopefully some things will get passed. I'm just I'm hopeful. Well, I think there's a lot of movement in the states. And I was going to say, I think that if we could get you involved in isolated cases with state laws, no, 90% of the people in prison in America are in state prisons. Yeah. Right. So the, you know, the federal, uh, it's going to move much slower on the federal level yeah. for the time being. And it's very important to work on the micro and the macro, right? The micro is it's the Alice Johnsons of the world, the Stephen Lennons of the world, the Lenny Singleton, who I was had the thrilling experience of walking out of prison in Virginia a few weeks ago. Um, <clears throat> but the macro is changing these laws. So it doesn't yeah. happen to other people. Because if you're listening out there and you don't think it can happen to you, it can happen to you. Mm-hmm. And by the way, be aware, like if you're riding in a car and someone else has drugs 
and you get pulled over, and nobody takes responsibility for it. It belongs to everybody. If it's in the glove compartment or the or the trunk or under the seat, absolutely. You, know, you, you can be just so you can get caught up. If you think this can't happen to you, it can happen to I was, you. When I was talking to Chris Young, who's who's in prison, he has um, sickle cell anemia, so he's had to have a few surgeries. So he's been in a medical facility for a few years, and he goes back into. Um, the maximum security prison where lifers have to go. And he's so like, he's had a perfect record and he was saying like, I can stay out of trouble in here, but going in there, I'm, you know, there's stabbings, there's this. And if you're near that, you can get in trouble so easily. And I, you know, he was just didn't want to get caught up in a situation that had nothing to do with him, but could very much have, by, you know, the close proximity have so much to do with him. And it's just, you know, it's scary when you, you know, have a minor drug charge, but then you get life and you're stuck in this crazy maximum security prison with murderers and and people that, you know, just it's a completely different environment than the environment that he's so used to. Life in prison for a nonviolent offense. There's no other country that does that. I mean, it's so nuts the way we treat our own people. You know, and I talk to politicians and I'll be like, well, you know, if another country treated our people the way we do, we'd invade. Mm-hmm. We'd be like, you're not getting away with that. You can't do that to our citizens. Are you nuts? Put them in these gulags, these violent places where they where, that breed disease and 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 you know abuse, all kinds of abuse, physical, sexual, where there's stabbings and you where you're to basically just try to stay alive. Mm-hmm. And and some of them are privatized. Don't even get me started on that. No other country would do this, but we do it to our own citizens who are just regular people until one day they're caught up and then the next thing you know, there they are. And it's like, ah, you know, people just sort of forget about them. We can't forget about them. Kim, let me ask you something. So can you describe that feeling? Like when you found out that Alice was going to go home and you knew that you had a lot to do with it, right? That you were really the driving force behind Giving this woman, this lovely woman, by all accounts, everything I've heard about her, her life back. Like, I mean, that's not an exaggeration. She was going to die in prison. Mm-hmm. What was that? How did you find out about it, number one? Where were you? What were you doing? Was it hot? Was it cold? What Were you sitting down? Did you scream? And, and how did it feel? Can you explain that? Yeah, I was on a photo shoot with Stephen Klein. And it was a very racy photo shoot. <laughs> oh my God, it's perfect. It's so, perfect. <laughs> I'm like practically naked and my phone rings. And I knew that I should be, I mean, it, it would have been this really long roller coaster of, is this going to happen? Is it not going to happen? You know, after I'd gone to the White House. White House. So The odds were definitely against you. Let's just say that. It yes. It was a long shot. Yes. Um, and then get a phone, my phone rings and it says unknown. And so I'm like, give me a, you know, get me a robe. Hold on. Stop. You know, and I I run over and I answer the phone and it is the president. And um, he let me know himself that he was going to release Alice and he was signing the paper right then and there. And um, I just was like in shock. I was just so happy. Did you scream? Did you cry? Um, I didn't cry until I called Alice to tell her myself. 
And um, so you got to break the news to her. Yes, wow. I got to break the news to her. So great. And um, as it should be. It was just, it was crazy because so I spoke, you know, to the president. He let me know um, that that was what was going to happen, and he was going to sign the papers right then and there, and she could be released that day. And, you know, I didn't know, does it happen right away? Is there a process? Is it, you know, what is it? So he was going to let her go. You know, he told me she can leave today. So I called the attorneys. Um, a woman named Brittany was really heading it from Buried Alive, the organization Buried mm-hmm. Alive. So her and I have been in contact of how, you know, with Chris Young, who I'm, you know, working with now and all these other people, she really brings me people that, you know, she really was backing Alice for, you know, years and helping Alice. So Brittany, what's her last name? Um, Brittany Barnett. And what's the the organization? Because I want people buried to alive. It. Yeah, buried, buried alive. alive. Mm-hmm. So um she's been amazing and so, so great and has brought me people that she thinks that I would really connect with, like Chris, and um she's been great to work with. So she I call um my attorney, Sean, who connects me with Brittany, and they call Alice. And so Alice says that she got, you know, uh, on the loudspeaker, like, Alice, come to here, you know, phone call. So she gets on the phone and she assumes that it's a regular attorney's call. I mean, she obviously knows that I went to the White House and we're just waiting. And I filled her in right after I was done with the White House on how the conversation went. And I said to her, you know, it couldn't have gone any better. I know I gave it my all. I feel like we gave an amazing pitch and I feel like the president heard us and did feel like she had spent her time and I felt that. And so I felt really confident and I'm I'm the type of person where like I don't like to get excited. I don't over speak until something is done and ready and you know finished. So I didn't want to get her too excited but I knew it went well. So then um, didn't know what happened this quick. And um, because it had been about six months of me talking to Jared Kushner and and getting this all happening. It wasn't a quick overnight thing. It wasn't like Kim called. She got a meeting and this happened. It did not happen like that. It it was a long time getting her file together and a lot of fighting for her. So um, Alice gets on the phone and I thought that the attorney's had told her already because I was just jumping in the call and I thought we were just going to have the celebrate celebratory call. I had no idea she didn't know. So she wasn't like scream. She wasn't. And I know her. I feel like she'd cry and be screaming and thanking me. And she just was kind of like, hey, what's going on? What, what's up? And I was like, oh, it's Kim. I'm on the phone. And she was like, hey, how are you? And then I said, oh, wait, you don't know? Because I was so shocked that she was so calm. Hmm. And she said, no, no what? And I said, Alice, you're going home. Hmm. And the screams and the cries, and that's when I cried. It was like three minutes on the phone of like tears. No one can speak. And then finally she was like, okay, well, what, what do I do? Where do I go? Like, and I was like, the, the attorneys jumped in to tell her the protocol. But yeah, it was just, it was such a cool thing. Such a cool moment. I was like, okay, this feeling, if I used my resources to make this happen for her, what else can we do? Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Was that one of the happiest moments of your life? It really was. It really, really was. Meeting her was was another one. 
just just seeing her family, seeing because you can hear about it and like like I was talking about on paper and in person. I when I saw the video of Alice, that's what changed me. If I were to just hear the story, I would definitely feel something. But when I saw her, heard her talk, saw her eyes felt her soul and what her family was missing out on and her missing out on her grandbabies and her parents dying and all this stuff. Yeah. Her great grandchildren. I felt like a connection, like, well, I have all, you know, I have a big family and I, I would be devastated if something like that happened in my family. So meeting her family and seeing that all come to life and, and like what you were saying in the studio earlier, she didn't even know how to have a cell phone before. Seeing her figure out an iPhone and how to, you know, what an emoji was and like the simple things, <laughs> that was really crazy to just, she just wanted to do the simplest things. So, you know, it's interesting too. It's another parallel because um, many years ago in 2000, um, I was fortunate to get to have dinner with President Clinton um, in a group. But I was at his table and I got him to talk to me about the drug laws and, you know, he admitted they were wrong. And he said, you know, I think if someone breaks the law, they should uh, they should go to jail, but they shouldn't spend the best years of their life there for a nonviolent offense. And I was mm-hmm. like, OK, so we agree on that. And I gave him a letter uh, from a woman uh, who he had he had granted a few clemencies up to that point. Uh, and I gave him a letter from one of the women he had granted clemency to, who was one of those ones, like a girlfriend of a drug dealer, and it was an Arkansas case. And he read it, and I said to him, Mr. President, um, what you did for these five people was heroic, wonderful, but I know of hundreds of other cases just as bad as those. And he said, in front of the whole table, he said, you get them to me, and I'll sign them. Yeah. And I was like, and I, well, then I was like, wait, what? Hold on. Okay. I said, okay, let me just get my wits about me. Right. The whole table was like, look, like, what did he just say? And so I said, well, Mr. President, when you leave here tonight, you're not, I never met him before. I was like, you're not going to be the easiest guy to me to get on the phone. Like, how do you recommend I do that? And he told me the whole proper channels to go through the chief counsel, the ju- justice part, the whole thing. Right. And so then I worked with families against mandatory minimums and we found cases that fit the criteria that he wanted to see nonviolent first offenders serving these crazy sentences. And um, you just brought this memory back for me. Uh, so thank you for that because we end, and it took, I, I had to push a lot even from that point. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't like the next day, hey, everything's great, yeah. you know. But, um, you know, perseverance is an important part of my story. And, uh, and ultimately, um, that was only, if, that was only, uh, I think it was September of his last year in office. So only had till January, and uh, I'll think my dad helped me with that. Funny enough, because we ended up putting together 17 cases. Um, ultimately, more we found more. I think it was a total of 23 that we ended up asking for. These were all families against mandatory minimums cases, and he granted two in December. And I was with my dad, the famous lawyer, dad of mine, who really put this justice, this this sense of fairness and ethics and morality into me. Um, and who, you know, was my hero growing up and he's not around anymore, but I said, I would happen to be having lunch with him on his birthday, which was December 20th. I said, dad, this is ridiculous. He told me he was going to, he only gave me two. 
And, uh, and my dad helped me at that point forward. He said, I'm going to, I have an idea how to help. And he got involved and, you know, connected me with someone else who, you know, connected me with someone. And, you know, it's just like you, like you, you just have to keep pushing. Mm -hmm. And ultimately he, President Clinton granted clemency to 17 of those people. Wow. And, you know, many of them have gone on to achieve, uh, higher degrees of learning. Uh, Peter Neinmeier got a master's degree from like Kansas state. Uh, Kemba Smith is now an attorney in Atlanta, uh, uh, she's a public defender, I believe. She got a degree from a law degree from the University of Michigan. These are all people who just needed a second chance, mm-hmm. you know. Th- and and my and I'm, I, I hope we can really shift the public consciousness on this together, Kim, because these people are not dangerous. These are people who just want a chance, and they'll work harder. And if you're an employer, you're somebody who has a mm-hmm. business out there, giving somebody like them a chance when they get out is Absolutely. the best decision you're going to make because they will work harder and do better because they're so and grateful. they know they do not want to go back. They don't want to go back. They've learned. They didn't need these long sentences to learn. They want to have a life and have a chance. And I have not, I've been, knock wood, I've been very fortunate that of all the people, all the clemency cases I've worked on, state and federal, none of them have reoffended. Um, not all That's of amazing. them, and not all of them are doing fantastic. You know, I mean, it doesn't, it's still very challenging on the outside. It's what I call the second punishment, right? The stigma that's associated with, yeah. you know, formerly incarcerated people, system affected people. But so many of them are doing wonderful things, raising families. You know, Stephen Lennon, the first guy, you know, he ended up having a family. Oh, I'll tell you a great story. So Stephen Lennon. Um, six months after he got out, I, I said this, I was doing a TEDx talk from inside a maximum security prison in Uganda in March. And uh, I told this story. So Stephen got out and, um, and that one took about six months as well uh, from the time I first read the story in the newspaper. And five months later, I got a letter in the mail from a woman whose name I didn't recognize in Cincinnati, Ohio. So I was like, I think her name was Joanne Paris. I don't know. Anyway, so I opened the letter and it started off, Dear Jason, you don't know me, but you got me pregnant. <laughs> and that's what I said. I was like, oh, wait, what? I'm starting to think my mind's racing. Did I go to Cincinnati? Like, oh my God, right? No man ever wants to hear those words. And I was like, wait, what? And so I read on and it says, um, just so you know, my brother, Stephen Lennon, and for the last five years, my husband and I have been trying to conceive. And the, and the doctor told me that the stress of my brother's incarceration was preventing us from... Uh, getting pregnant. Getting pregnant. And wow. I'm pregnant now. I just thought you wanted to know. And I was like, oh, man, that's just a gift that just keeps on giving. So <laughs> yeah. it is, you know, it's it's such a joy. I saw it in the videos. And why I really wanted to have you on the show is because I saw, uh, you know, I saw an interview you did with Mike. And I read, uh, you know, various stories about your uh, involvement and your um your joy, you know, and your joy just came through uh, in all of it. Thank you. And it is—it's a—it's a sense of pure joy, and it is—it is better than anything I know um, in terms of. I mean, we both are are lucky to to be, you know, to have a family and to have the, the, you know, that that's a different category, right? I don't think you can compare. That's a, yeah. you know, and anyone out there who has kids, you know, yeah. can relate to that. Um, but. If you take that aside, it's hard to think of a better feeling. I know for me, that day when I got that phone call that President Clinton was had granted those clemencies, it was... Um, it's the best feeling in the world. It's the best. Just it's unbelievable. to know that you're going to change someone's life forever. And I just want to do and more of it. I'm, them life. I'm going to keep doing it until I am until my last breath. I mean, because it's it it's a purpose. It's I call it selfish altruism. You know, it makes me feel good. 
Yeah. Um, I love doing it. I love talking about it. I love seeing people like you get involved with it. I love the movement spreading. I love the laws that we're changing. And I'm going to, you know, look, it's amazing. 30 years ago, uh, if someone said, hey, you know, marijuana is going to be legal in most of America, I would have said, no, nah, it's not possible. But we fought. Like so many of us fought for this, you know. And there's no reason anyone should go to jail for marijuana. And, and that's changing. There's still people mm-hmm. like Chris who are in prison for life for marijuana, plant mm-hmm. that's legal and how'd mm-hmm. you like to be him or his family there's right a little cocaine a little cocaine a little like a half a gram oh my god a half a gram let's think about that a gram is such a small amount it's like yeah like think about that it's such how big i don't even know it's like um but yeah so look we've got a ton of work to do um you so much work you know, we need more of you. I think we need to really, the last point I, I want to talk about is clemencies. Um, you have shown um, in a very public way that this act of mercy, this act of, uh, it's a responsibility, really. I mean, the reason governors and presidents are given that power is because they're supposed to do things like this, right? Mm-hmm. It's their, It's part of their job. And over the years, it's declined so much. Mm-hmm. Um, in the post Willie Horton era, all of a sudden, everyone was scared to give clemencies, and and it, it, that's not right. And I know that for me, whether it was working with Governor McAuliffe or other governors I've worked with, or uh, during the Obama administration, or with President Clinton, um, every single time I've had the experience of working with a political leader. Uh, who's in a position to give those clemencies, in the aftermath, they've come to me and said that it was a profound experience for them. In many cases, they meet the people who they've granted clemency to. Uh, President Clinton told me subsequently he wished he would have done more. You know, mm-hmm. And so for people who are out there listening who may work in the offices of, uh, of in the I'm halls of power. I the White House will do more. I think, I think with your support and other people uh, like you advocating, they will. And I think we can, we can do so much better in the states as well. Yeah. And I'm hoping to meet Governor Brown and whoever will be the next governor. Hopefully, go, I, 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 I'm a Newsom fan, so I hope Gavin Newsom's the next governor. But, um, but the yes, Governor Brown has expressed a great deal of interest in this. He's worked. He he's granted a, quite a few clemencies yeah. already, and I think he has his heart in the right place. He wants to, you know, he, he is someone who is on the same page as us in terms of life without parole being an insane sentence. It's an insane sentence. Yeah. Life without parole. And you know, you know I, and I will, I, I said that was going to be my last point, but I'll make one more point. Because for people out there listening, you're paying for this, right? Yeah. I mean, you know who's making money? The prison, the, this, the prison industrial complex, the private prisons. There's a lot of people making money on these inmates, on these, these incarcerated people. But you're paying for it. It doesn't come from the air. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come from... You know, it's not, it's like it, and, and in some states we spend more money incarcerating Americans than we do educating them. Mm -hmm. And so, and then of course the kids will end up with no parent and then they're much more likely to get in trouble. And so, you know, everything from bail reform, there's just so many important things that have to be done, but we have to end mass incarceration. We can do it. Um, and we will do it. Uh, together. So uh, for everybody listening out there, you know, get involved. Um, go to Families Against Mandatory Minimums, FAMM.org. Go to BuriedAlive.org. 
go to um, innocenceproject.org, get online, learn about it. The, all these websites have pages where you can get involved, host an event, raise money, write letters to inmates. So important. I mean, give a little hope. to That's a ho- my reading now. I don't read books anymore. I, I, I read letters. I get stacks of letters daily that um, inmates write me. So I, I love to read them and go through them and hear their stories. And I hope it all, you know, changes. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it, those people are, you know, those people are smart because they're reaching out. I mean, there's, there's sad, tragically, there's so many people inside who've given up hope. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and at the same time, we've, we've both had the experience of seeing what it's like when they get out. These people are so full of grace and so full of, you know, the, 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 the amazing thing is for everyone I've met whose system affected formerly incarcerated, there's not one of them who's bitter. Mm-hmm. They all have this, the same thing that I saw with Alice, you know, when she was speaking. They're, they're just optimistic mm-hmm. and they're, um, they, they have, like I said, this state of grace. And, and that puts so much gratitude in my attitude mm-hmm. when I see these people who are like, they've just been through this ordeal that no one can even imagine mm-hmm. that hasn't been through it. I can't. Um, and I've been I around can't. it for 25 years. And yet they come out like, hey, man, let's go. Like, you know, I was actually talking so to my friend, the artist. grateful. I was talking to my friend, the artist Peter Tunney today about uh, a guy named Keith Allen Harvard who's been on the same podcast who was in prison for 34 years for a crime he didn't commit. And uh, he has n- nothing but just That's positivity. What, I, mean, I don't know. I, there's so many cases that I've been reading about that lately, just completely innocent and just people that have been in for 30 plus years when just DNA testing is so different. Like... Um, is it Kevin Cooper? Oh, Kevin Cooper. I know. Oh my God. I tweeted for Governor Brown. I'm like, please just DNA test. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all D- you got to do. Just DNA test. It's just like the most DNA basic thing, Kim, right? Like, let's just row. find out whether he's guilty or innocent. The DNA yeah. doesn't lie. Yeah. You know? That's that, what that, I, I, there should just, that is what literally kills me. Stories like his, that it's so simple. And he could have been executed, too. I mean, there's so many innocent people on death row. We know that approximately uh, the best estimates are that 4% of people on death row are innocent. Yeah. So imagine that. And when I talk to people who are in favor of the death penalty, I'm like, well, okay, uh, how many innocent people is it okay to execute? Yeah. And people go, no, 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 but I mean, you can't execute. And I go, well, but you know the system is Like, flawed. how can you be on death row without DNA evidence, with nothing linking you, there- D- like, to the, it's so crazy to me. That's just crazy. There was there have been executions where we've been fighting to get the DNA tested, and they've refused right up until the date of the execution, and gone ahead and execute somebody anyway. I mean, it's um, it, that's it's heartbreaking. Just, it is. There was one in Kansas. Uh, I think it was Kansas last year that we were fighting like hell to get this the DNA tested, and they just wouldn't do it. It was a guy named Liddell Lee. Um, and he's gone now. And it's like the state should not be in the business of killing people because we the system is never going to be perfect. Even if everybody's well-intentioned, it's not going to be perfect. And for people listening out there, and they've heard me say this on the show before, when we convict an innocent person and we keep them in prison, even when the authorities know they're innocent, that means that the guilty person is free. Just like in Kevin Cooper's case, mm-hmm. everybody knows it Said was the three, three white, white guys, guys that did yeah. it. There's overwhelming evidence of that. And those guys were free to go out. And yeah, and, and there's like, I mean, the guy's girlfriend called and said, I mean, everyone, that makes no sense. Like, wouldn't the community be more scared knowing that 
there's like so multiple people said it was three white guys. And then just to know that they're not locked up and they have a black guy locked up instead, like that fear to me would, I don't know. It's so, so twisted. No, so just, twisted. And it's, and it's not, it's, it's very common, you know, in so many of the cases of the Innocence Project, when we exonerate an innocent person with DNA, we then put the DNA in the national database and we get uh, often get a hit. I don't know if it's 50% yeah. of the time. And we were able to show who the actual perpetrator was. And in an overwhelming percentage of those cases, that person has gone on and raped and murdered other people, Absolutely. innocent people, yeah. because they were free, yeah. because the authorities didn't do their job. Yeah. And, and sometimes there's a mistake. I understand nobody's perfect. You know, yeah. Everyone makes mistakes. I make mistakes in my job. But there's a not, lot of these cases like Kevin Cooper where it's, it was obvious from the beginning that he didn't do it. And they had that, that, that case came with instructions, just like the Central Park Five did. The Central Park Five, and I interviewed Yusuf Salam last week in New York on this show. You know, In that case, they, they had every reason to suspect that it was this guy, Matthias Reyes. They were already watching him. He was a suspect in another similar rape and beating where the Central Park was almost you know, beaten to death. She lost 75% of her blood. They knew it had to be him. They knew it was a single perpetrator. And they arrested these five black kids just because black and Hispanic, just because they could. And then the, the, the testing came back and they saw that none of the blood matched. The, the blood of the perpetrator was there. The semen, it didn't match any of those kids. And they went ahead and prosecuted them anyway. And then this Matthias Reyes guy went out and raped four other women and killed one of them in the apartment with her three children there. She was pregnant. I mean, it doesn't get worse. And she said, can I please just put my kids in the other room before you kill me? And then he did. And he went ahead and killed her. And like that woman should be alive today. And I believe that the authorities should be held responsible for her death because they knew who it was. But they had so much media on that case. And that's another thing for people to be aware of when you're on a jury, when there's so much media around a case and and making a murderer made this point very well, too. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, we can have a debate about that all day long. But Brendan Dassey is innocent. Right. He's totally he's still in prison. But and that that I wanted to jump through the screen and that Mm -hmm. watch that movie and strangle somebody. I was like, yeah. if I could jump, I mean, so, but yeah, so in those cases, and Kevin Cooper is one of those cases where it's abundantly How long has he been clear. in for? 30-something years? 30-something years, yeah. yeah. And he could have very well been executed. And there's so many Kevin Coopers yeah. out there, and it has, I mean, it has to change. I heard the their DNA testing it, though. I think they're that's going to, I, finally. That's what I saw online. Yeah, it's it's so. like it's it's a it's a massive problem. Look, I mean, we we're we're going to fix it. Um, it's a huge challenge, but you know, nothing comes easy. I mean, here it is. Isn't today like Mandela's hundredth birthday or something yeah. like that? So, yeah. what a way to celebrate by bringing attention to this yeah. uh, this amazing cause. And you know, Kim, I could literally sit here and talk to you all day. I see you're like a sponge. You're learning so much in such I'm a short period a lot. of time. I don't know everything, and I love to ask questions. I love to listen to stories and just soak it all in and see what I can do next. Yeah. Well, we're, we're going to, we're going to do big things together. Um, I, I can see it now. I'm, uh, I, I'm just, as you can tell, I'm so excited that I can't stop talking because I just, <laughs> this is what gets me, as you can tell, most excited, like the thrill of being able to help you know, uh, a Nora Jackson or a Michelle Murphy or, and to make a difference in the lives of those people who are just people like you and me, who one day were just living their life. And then the justice system just collapsed on them. And well, first of all, my listeners know if you get arrested for something and you didn't do it, don't say anything. The cops are not your friends. They're going to bring you in. They say, Kim, we just want to ask you a few questions. The only thing you say is, my name's Kim. 
Kardashian, here's my address, and I want a lawyer. Yeah. That's it. And then shut up. After you say you want a lawyer, they, they're not allowed to talk to you anymore. But if you start talking, they'll eventually get you to say almost anything. They'll say, you'll mm-hmm. say you kidnapped the Lindbergh baby if they keep you in there long enough. You yeah. know what I mean? So, um, but so for people out there listening, um, you know, get involved, be woke, right? Yeah. Serve on jury duty. Because it's so important. You're, someone else's life will be in your hands. And vote. I mean, you have to vote. You, you have to, to learn about these cases. Look at the DA's races, right? There's such low turnout in these races. Get out there and vote for the progressive candidate because there are people like Larry Krasner, who just got elected in Philadelphia, who's going to turn the system upside down, right? Because he comes in and he goes, look, I'm not going to tolerate this. Like, we're not going to lock up innocent people. We're not going to prosecute people for these ridiculous low-level nonviolent crimes, pot offenses, things like that. Like, we need progressive prosecutors because they hold all the power. And that goes back to what I was saying, which is that criminal defense attorneys, it's it's such a tilted system, right? You know, the scales of justice are supposed to be even. But if you're poor... And you get caught in the system and you have a public defender who's overworked, underpaid, maybe maybe doesn't even know what they're doing. I mean, we've mm-hmm. had cases, death penalty cases where the divorce lawyer did it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or like somebody or, or people who are drunk or even in Texas, there was a case where the lawyer was asleep and the, the court of appeals in I Texas. I about that. Yeah. The lawyer slept and the, and the court of appeals ruled wow. that because the guy appealed and said he was entitled to an attorney that was, you know, awake. awake. And they said, no, no, you're entitled to an attorney, but not necessarily one that's awake. So we've seen cases where the attorney was drunk, where the attorney didn't show up. But even in the best case, public defenders are overworked, underpaid. They don't have the resources. In some states, you have $500 to defend even a capital case. You can't hire investigators, going back to what you said before. Whereas the prosecutors... I didn't know that. Yeah. And the prosecutors have all this power. They're able to decide. They're able to go to you and say, listen, 96% of all felony convictions in America are the result of guilty pleas Mm -hmm. because the prosecutors have so much power because they can go to an Alice Johnson. They say, listen, we're going to give you life in prison unless you plead guilty. Mm -hmm. And you may not have even done anything, but you're a public defender. You're looking, you're going, that guy doesn't look Mm -hmm. like, or that woman doesn't look like they know what they're doing. I'm in big trouble here. Like they're stacked against me. you got all these... You know, and a jury comes in with an inherent bias, thinking that if you're up on the stand, you must have done something. This has been proven in a study that was done by my friend Josh Dubin. So you have a really like a Sophie's choice or a Hobson's choice yeah. because, you know, you're you're facing these prosecutors and they have a reverse incentive, which is that they want convictions. They don't necessarily want justice. For That's them, what's convictions crazy to yeah, me. It is, right? They'd rather have a guilty person out there. Then, and just to get a conviction. And get it off their desk. And yeah, then, and then they go home and on. Then they go home and have a nice dinner and go to sleep, watch a little TV. And yeah. it's like, I don't understand the lack of, of, of humanity that, that, that's inherent in that. So, Kim, like I said, I could literally talk to you all day. Yeah. I, I really enjoy it, but I don't want to keep you here all day. And, um, but I do want to, um, I have a tradition here on wrongful conviction. Yes. And listeners know um, they're used to this. And this is my favorite part of the show. Um, Usually it's an exoneree sitting where you are or someone who is incarcerated. Um, But this part of the show is where I shut up and I say to you, first of all, Kim, thank you for being here and taking your time. I know you could be doing a million other things. Thank you for having me. And lending your voice to the movement. And now I just want to say, I'm going to turn the mic over to you and say what, if you want to leave our audience with any thoughts at all, what would they be? Just that 
I didn't know anything going into this and I still don't know everything. I'm learning so much as I go, but I know that I have a voice and so I am happy to use it. So if you feel passionate about this at all, to anyone just out there listening, there's so much you can do to help. And I just encourage you to do that. Wise words. And um, I want to once again thank you. Um, it's been a, a real pleasure for me today. It was uh, nice to meet you. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks for being here. And uh, once again, uh, you've been listening to a very special episode of Wrongful Conviction um, with Kim Kardashian and Jason Flom. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.